Thank you, Your Honor. We'll move on to our third argument for the day, United States v. Alahaira. Excuse me, Alahaira. Case number 22-35422. Your Honors, may it please the Court, my name is Curtis Izaki of the law firm McNall-Ebel, and I represent the appellant Sean Alahaira, two difficult names in this case. I'd like to reserve three minutes for rebuttal. This appeal presents two core legal issues. I'll begin with the question under the Washington Fraudulent Transfer Statute before turning to the contemporaneous exchange issue. Can we start with jurisdiction? Because we can't do anything if we don't have jurisdiction. Of course. And is it still the case that there has not been an order of sale entered by the district court? That is correct, Your Honor. There has not been an order of sale. The district court has treated the matter as put the matter on hold pending the appeal. Well, on hold means it's not over. Well, normally. Your Honor, in this case, the law, I think, is actually quite clear, even under the cases cited by the government for the opposite proposition, that the order here is sufficient to be final and appealable because under Citicorp Real Estate v. Smith, this is a Ninth Circuit case, 155 F. 3rd, 1097, the circuit held that an order of this kind is final and appealable if it identifies the property to be sold in satisfaction of the debt and determines the rights of the parties. But it doesn't, first of all, it set an issue that had to be quantified, and then it used language that said, you know, if the court orders sale, then it will do this, which suggested that the sale had not been formally ordered. What case says that we can exercise jurisdiction in a case of this sort when there has not been a final determination of the fact that the property will be ordered to be sold? So, Your Honor, I read the order a little bit differently. It authorizes the sale to move forward pending a calculation of an issue, the value of a certain deed, which was then, which calculation was then later done and agreed to. But isn't that a problem in and of itself, the calculation was then later done? I mean, I almost interpreted the court to, we're talking about the March order. That's what you've appealed from, right? Correct, Your Honor. I sort of looked at the court's opinion to say, look, you guys go figure out what the value is. You know, it may be that we don't even do a sale based on whatever that value is. I mean, I don't know whether that was a possibility or not, but to Judge Collins' point, it clearly had language of if a sale is to be ordered. How is that final, if a sale is to be ordered? Well, in this instance, my client appealed from the order because it met the threshold of characteristics laid out by the precedent of this circuit. That's my question. How does it meet the characteristics when it says if a sale is to be ordered? I don't understand under any theory how that is a final order. Well, Your Honor, 
Here, the order of sale was only contingent on the calculation of the deed of trust. That's not true. Show me where it says that in the order. The order says if a sale is to be ordered. What Judge Nelson is referring to is the stipulation that settles the amount of the BECU deed says that Sean Aliari agrees that in connection with the sale of the property, if ordered, he will not seek to enforce or recover. So even the stipulation that settles the amount of this acknowledges that the sale hasn't been ordered yet. So the underlying order authorizes the sale, though. Not the stipulation order. The underlying order. The stipulation order was the June order. Yeah, the stipulation order came afterwards. And you agree that we don't have jurisdiction over that? Or are you also arguing that we do have jurisdiction? No, that comes up as well. That's part of this appeal. It's not a necessary part of the appeal because it's not necessary to resolve any of the legal issues before you today. But, yes, it comes up as part of the appeal as we briefed to the court. So the underlying order, it identifies the property. That's at ER 25. It defines the value of the senior loan and how that's to be calculated at ER 4. It invalidates the 2005 deed of trust, which is kind of the core of the issue here today, at ER 30. And it defines the sums due to the United States under the tax liens at ER 50, paragraph 37, and the United States entitlement to sale. That's at ER 36. It does all the necessary elements to be a final and appealable order. So your point would be we can't consider what he later said in June. I mean, you agree that that language, if ordered, that would suggest that's not a final order, right? Your Honor, that language may have been a recognition that this case was on appeal and that there were legal issues to be determined. I don't want to purport to speak for the court about what if ordered means in June. But your point would be we need to take it at the time of March, the March order, and we can't look to the June order to interpret the March order. I think at least in— Or that we don't need to. I don't think we need to, and I think that the June order, when read with the March order, still indicates that foreclosure sale is going to— The March order says the court, however, will delay entering an order for judicial sale until after it has received the requisite joint status report from the parties and has determined how to calculate the value of the BECU deed of trust. So the court is acknowledging that it has not entered an order for sale, and then it gets a BECU deed of trust stipulation that also acknowledges that the order has not been entered, and I've looked at the docket, and the order isn't there. So it's not there. Your Honor, in this regard, I would just encourage you to consult the authority that I referenced earlier. An order of sale in itself—the order of sale itself is not a prerequisite for an appeal. In my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, you're right that they've said the order of sale doesn't necessarily need to be there, but that's only if there's some ministerial task that's holding it up, right? I mean, and is that your argument, that this fits within some ministerial task exception? This seems like a substantive issue that the parties were told to go figure out and come back to the court. It was an issue—well, it was well understood at the time, the range of values we were talking about. This wasn't going to rise above the value of the house such that an argument, which we presented 
to the court below, but the court below rejected, such that the senior... That there was going to be no value in ordering the settlement. I'm sorry. Did you seek authorization for an interlocutory appeal? No, Your Honor. We appealed from it as a final judgment, a foreclosure judgment under the authority we laid out. Let's suppose the panel agrees with you and we take this case on and we assume that what happens before Judge Zille was a final order. What happens with the sale? What happens with the sale? What happens with the sale would turn on how this court... If somebody wanted to get authorization for the sale, the affected party here, the government, does Judge Zille still have a case? This court would remand back to the district court if this court's finding is that the 2005 deed of trust is not a fraudulent transfer and it's enforceable under federal tax law, then there would be a remand to the district court to determine under U.S. v. Rogers and the related authority whether the United States as a junior lien holder can foreclose in this scenario. I think that's a decision properly for the district court in the first instance. I think that the answer is clear. The record is clear here that the analysis under U.S. v. Rogers would not support a foreclosure sale because the junior lien interest of the United States would be clearly without value at that point and you do the balancing test in U.S. v. Rogers and there wouldn't be any basis for a foreclosure sale at that point where the property would not sell. You would like us to rule on the fraudulent transfer determination by the district court? I would like you... Is that correct? I would like you to address the court's conclusion, the foreclosure judgment, that the 2005 deed of trust was a fraudulent transfer and also the issue that was remanded by this court... And then send it back to the district court to determine remaining issues. With one small caveat, my answer is yes. The caveat being there is one issue, this issue of contemporaneous exchange under the federal tax statute to determine lien priority under federal law that was remanded by this court the first time this case was on appeal to the district court and fully briefed at the district court level but was not actually resolved by the district court. It ended its analysis with the fraudulent transfer question. It was fully briefed there. It's a pure question of law. The pure question of law is whether the state of Washington will recognize the validity of a lien in the absence of a contemporaneous exchange of value. And our position on that is that the answer is clearly yes. Washington does not require contemporaneous exchange. And I can go into that issue if you would like. Can I ask a question about the relationship between .041 in the Washington statute and .051? Because .41 is captioned transfers fraudulent as to present and future creditors and it has a general rule. And then .51 is transfers fraudulent as to present creditors and then has a specific rule. And it says a transfer made or obligation incurred by a debtor is fraudulent as to a creditor whose claim arose before the transfer was made or the obligation was incurred if. And then it goes through. Are those alternative tests? So if you meet 
the factors that are in 0.51, do you have to do the full multi-factor in 0.04? I'm just trying to understand at a global legal level how these two sections fit together under Washington law. Under a certain factual scenario, I think you could look at 0.51 and do that analysis. That theory was not pleaded here. It was not part of the case. So it was never a factor that the district court considered how to reconcile those provisions. This case was brought under 0.041, the constructive fraud standard under the badges of fraud analysis. So I do think that if you have a scenario with a present creditor, you can look to 0.51. That's just not the way it was pleaded here. If you look at 0.51B, it just says a transfer made by a debtor is fraudulent as to a creditor whose claim arose before the transfer was made. That's true here. If the transfer was made to an insider, that's true. For an antecedent debt, that's also true. The debtor was insolvent at that time. That's true. And the insider had reasonable cause to believe that the debtor was insolvent. That's true, too. Done. Why isn't it the case that easy? Well, the case isn't that easy because it was not an issue that was raised here. That was not a theory advanced by the government. 0.051 wasn't raised here? I mean, once the statute is raised, we get to decide what the statute means and how it applies. And I thought 0.051 was raised and in the mix. Your Honor, my understanding of the trial court record is that this was an 0.041 case. And that's how it was argued. It was argued on the badges of fraud analysis and not under 0.051. And so under this court's previous ruling, under 0.041 or 0.051, in the law as it existed at the time, what the court needs to look for is whether there's clear and satisfactory evidence that a transfer is in actuality fraudulent. And so what I'd like the court to keep in mind is what are the clear facts here? What are the clear? I mean, the district court, look, we're going to defer to the district court as long as he applied the correct standard. Your better argument seemed to be that he actually applied the wrong standard. Your Honor, I agree. I believe the district court did not give meaningful weight to this court's order the first time around to consider what is clear and satisfactory evidence. Instead, we laid this out at page 16 to 21 of our brief. It's essentially a parroting of the previous order with a conclusory statement that this is clear and satisfactory evidence. I don't even, I don't know how you get there. I mean, the evidence is so overwhelming here. Your Honor, I would like to save a moment for rebuttal. But the clear facts, to my view, the clear facts here are that the court found after sitting for a trial that my client was a bona fide creditor of the tax debtor, Kamran Aliari. He made significant loans. That's not always dispositive. You can still be a bona fide creditor and have a fraudulent transfer to a bona fide creditor. That's certainly the case. There could be an instance where the parties come to some understanding. This will not be repaid. It's more likely that it's going to be a fraudulent transfer to a bona fide creditor when there's a family relationship. Yes, but in this instance where the record supports that Mr. Sean Aliari was a bona fide creditor, he expected repayments, he received repayments, he was regularly checking in anticipating repayments, and then secured the right to record a lien against the property before any other debt that 
the tax debtor had was actually incurred on the facts of this case, if the fact that my client is the father of the tax debtor is treated essentially as dispositive, then there could be no... No, it's not dispositive. But, I mean, anyway, why don't we give you some time for rebuttal? This might come up. We'll hear from the government first. Thank you, Your Honor. So, thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. May it please the Court, good morning. My name is Rachel Wolitzer for Appley of the United States. I'd like to point out that the government only has to prevail on one of the two issues raised in the decision. Can we go to jurisdiction? Of course. Here's my concern. I mean, I think we don't have jurisdiction. You've suggested we don't have jurisdiction. Correct. I think you're probably right. So, my practical concerns don't matter, but my practical concerns are this is just going to delay this whole case because what's going to happen? If we dismiss this appeal for lack of jurisdiction, and what? We go back and we tell the district court, okay, now you've got to go forward with the tax sale. Can the tax sale happen? I mean, then what's the question? Does the sale actually go forward, or does the district court's issue a sale order but stay it pending appeal? We don't argue that the sale actually has to be completed or confirmed. Well, that would be almost. Yeah. I don't know how you'd unwind all that. Correct. But that's my question is if we're going to require a sale order, then you're going to have all these sale orders where the delay in the sale is still going to be a year or two years for the appeal. Or does it come up, is that dependent on the state pending an appeal request? Well, in the cases that we cited in our brief, the court held that there was jurisdiction because the sale order had been entered, and that's what usually happens. The sale order does more than just order the sale. It's a detailed order that sets forth the procedures for the sale, property description. Does it also set forward the balance, how the money will be distributed? It gives, well. Because I thought that was part of it. I thought that was part of the jurisdictional analysis was that you had to have the amounts owing clarified. Well, it would set forth how the proceeds are distributed in accordance with the district court's decision. So the district court held the government was senior to Mr. Aliari. I guess the point is, is there a substantive determination that remains to be made? I mean, maybe it, or is it just a situation where the formal piece of paper that the sale shall be ordered has not been added? And maybe that carries the day. Maybe you need the formal piece of paper because jurisdictional rules are bright line. But it does seem like if you kind of take all these pieces of the order, all the substance is there. He just didn't put it together in one document and file it. But I think your opposing counsel's argument is that everything substantively that's needed to be done for an order of sale has, in fact, been determined. Well, as Judge Nelson pointed out, it hadn't been determined at the time that the first remand order. But your position is the June order still is not appealable, right? Correct. Because there's not a formal 
order of sale. Is that it? What else would be required to give us jurisdiction? The order of sale. That's it. Everything else has been done. It just has been. See, that strikes me as closer to kind of that ministerial task that it seems like we've held in some other cases can provide us with jurisdiction. But that's of the June order. That's not of the March order. Well, Mr. Haleari has indicated his intention to oppose the sale. So that may or may not be a ministerial order. His position opposing the sale seems to be based on the presumption that he'll prevail on the appeal. Then he would say the equity will be all consumed by Miley. How much are we talking about here? Because as I understand it, the whole position is the father, who's the appellant here, had a 12% interest rate. And so it's because a lot of the balance was paid off, but it was the interest that was accruing over that time, right? Yes. And how much is that coming to? Well, according to, I don't think there's anything on the record that has the current balances. But the BECU deed of trust will consume most of the value of the property. And that is senior or junior to? That is senior. We admit that. To you. But is it senior to the father? That's senior to the 2005 as well. So it's really an either or as between us and the 2005 deed of trust. You're not going to get much money out of this. Well, after the BECU deed of trust, if we prevail on appeal, then we are ahead of Mr. Aliari. And then we got. Are you ahead of Mr. Aliari? Because I thought a portion, there's some money that he's going to be ahead of you on, isn't there? Just the BECU deed of trust. Oh, that's it. Okay. So the issue in this case is whether. And the bigger concern is if we let this go for two years and the property values decline, then there's less money to be distributed, right? Which that's my fear. And again, this is a practical concern that almost has no bearing on jurisdiction. But in some ways, I'm wondering, I appreciate the, yes, if we don't have jurisdiction, we don't have jurisdiction. But in some ways, I would think the government would be saying, just figure this out. Let's move. Well, we would appreciate some guidance on the issue because it does come up quite frequently where we're kind of. If it comes up so frequently, where are the other cases on this? I mean, I'm looking at 1800 cases, you know, cases from the 1800s from the Supreme Court. We do have one from 1993, the Smith case, which says that court orders, you do have to have the property of sale. At least I read it to say you have to have the property of sale. And it has to quantify the debt. Do you agree that the debt was quantified? I'm not sure the debt was quantified in March. The IRS debt can always be quantified. But is, I don't think that, I think it's the quantity. Oh, is that all? And then the BECU debt was quantified in the second order. But you don't think that there was any problem in which order, the June order? Second order, the BECU deed of trust stipulated order. That's sort of my point, is I'm not sure it was quantified in March. Not in the first order, yes, Your Honor. Let's suppose the panel agrees with your position that we lack jurisdiction. Would the government object to a limited remand to district court to cure the problem of a lack of a sale order? Yes, Your Honor. And the panel retaining jurisdiction? 
That would be... Does the government think that's the appropriate way to handle the case? Yes, that would be a good solution, Your Honor. I was going to suggest that I hadn't cleared it with my office, but I don't believe they would have a problem with it. And that's how we normally deal with orders that, you know, have problems when they're on appeal. So you've done that before. Is that why we're not getting more case law on this? Well, I've done limited remands, not in this particular case. But how can we retain jurisdiction that we don't have? If we don't have jurisdiction, it's just got to be dismissed. Then you put in the right piece of paper, you file a new notice of appeal, and it goes back up. Retaining jurisdiction is when we have some valid foothold and we want to send it back for something. We just don't have any jurisdiction here to do anything. Well, that would be so that the case doesn't have to be rebriefed. Well, you know, that may be. I mean, that happens. I had one of these cases before, exactly the same kind of one claim wasn't formally papered, and it went papered, and then it got all rebriefed and came back up. That's just how it works with jurisdiction. I think Judge Collins has a fair point here. If we say there's no jurisdiction, I'm wondering if there's a way we can just say, go cure it. I don't know if the parties probably wouldn't agree to this, but the briefing wouldn't change. I mean, all we're talking about is a sale order being in, right? I mean, even you're not arguing that anything else needs to be figured out at this point. Well, there would, you know, there would be the delay in the briefing. Well, I'm just wondering if the parties couldn't agree that the briefing stands, then a new notice of appeals filed, and we kind of expedite it before this panel. I suppose you could do that, but I think there's a lot of hoops we'd have to go through. I guess I'm just agreeing that I'm concerned about a limited remand where we don't, if our position is, as the government says, we don't have jurisdiction, we're going to have to get jurisdiction over a September or October or November 2023 order and a new notice of appeal filed. Well, if we have no jurisdiction, we would still be remanding the case to the district court. Right, but that's a different, that's different than, I think that's what you're talking about. That's different than a limited remand where we retain jurisdiction. That's remand, and then there's a new notice of appeal filed. The disposition would be the appeal is dismissed for lack of jurisdiction. That would be the disposition. It wouldn't be a remand, it would just be the appeal is gone, and then the district court still has the case, goes forward, enters the final order, and then you start all over again. It's inefficient, but that jurisdiction is the one area where we have deadweight loss and efficiency. Of course, of course, Your Honor, and again, I don't know specifically how limited remands work. Well, I think in most other cases we could do it. I think it's the jurisdictional issue. Yeah, just like I said, I'm not sure how it would interact with that. Can I ask you on the merits the same question I asked your opposing counsel, which is this relationship between .041 and .051, and were both invoked by the government here? Well, in the interest of candor, Your Honor, I have to say that in the first appeal, this court held that we had waived that issue. Had waived which issue? The constructive fraud issue, 051. The 051? 
Yes. I mean, because it's kind of surreal that we're arguing about the multi-factor .041, and he's arguing, well, but it's an antecedent debt. And there's a rule on antecedent debt. It's in .051, and it seems as clear as day what the rule is, and we're supposed to close our eyes to it? Is that? Well, both of the provisions apply to antecedent debt to the extent antecedent debt is the same as existing debt. So it's just the nomenclature used by the statutes. But in the first Aliari opinion by this court, 980F3rd at 692.09, the court held that we argued for the first time that the 2005 deed of trust was fraudulent under 051, and that we didn't raise it before the district court. So the court held we had waived it. So we still are relying on it, though, because it's relevant to show that the cases relied on by Mr. Aliari, that holding the preferences to insiders by an insolvent debtor are permissible. Those are very old cases. And as we argue in our brief, those have been superseded by this .051B. And in fact, even the 11-factor test, which requires the court to consider whether the transfer was to an insider, also was passed after. Can I ask you about the June order, the language, it references the sale, and it says if ordered. What is the government's interpretation of that? Because to me, it's very difficult to say that. And I guess your position is that's not a final order. Even the June order, from your perspective, is not a final order. And is it because of the if ordered language, or is it because you just think that we need a piece of paper that says order of sale? The latter, Your Honor, because on page 13 of the court's first remand order, the court says the United States has established that it is entitled to foreclose its liens, sell the property, and apply the proceeds towards its liens. But that doesn't handle the details. It doesn't handle all the details of that, which would need to be in a order of sale. And that's sort of your point, is that there could be conditions, even once you say that sale has to go forward, there could be conditions of the sale that he could challenge. We want all of that in one final. Correct, Your Honor. He could challenge conditions of the sale. But as the court said. But if ordered, you don't think that that reflects any hesitancy by the district court to actually order a sale? I do not believe so, Your Honor, because the court in the first order also said, Sean has failed to carry his burden of proof that this court should exercise discretion not to issue a foreclosure order. And the first order has a whole section, section Roman numeral three, on judicial sale and analyzing whether it had discretion under the Rogers analysis not to order the sale. So. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honor. Thank you both for your arguments this morning. The case is submitted.
The court had decided it was going to order the sale, but again, the final sale order is required, as we've argued. Thank you. I think your time's up. Thank you so much. We have now time for rebuttal. They're granting me a little extra time, so I'll be very brief. To Your Honor's point, all that remains on the order of sale is a ministerial act at this point. Here's the problem as I see it. The March order clearly is not final because the BECU amount had not been determined. The problem is the BECU amount was determined after you filed your notice of appeal. So you'd actually benefit more from having the rule be that there's no final order of sale and we have no jurisdiction, because if the June order made it final, you didn't file another notice of appeal and you're gone at that point. It's a final order that was not appealed. I would agree with Your Honor that the June order in itself is not a final order. There's a foreclosure judgment. But if the current status now, in light of the June order, is that now all the pieces are together, you didn't file another notice of appeal and you're too late. And so if the answer isn't there's no final order, you may be in more trouble. I would disagree with that, Your Honor, because under the rule, a subsequent order of this type, which is not in itself the final, comes up with the appeal. That's not what the rule says. The rule says a notice of appeal filed after the court announces a decision or order, but before the entry of the judgment order is treated as filed on the date of or after. So that if summary judgment is granted from the bench, but it doesn't actually get entered a few days later. But it's not, I'm going to put an issue off and then that gets decided. You need another notice of appeal after a substantive issue is decided. So the issue here is that, as Your Honors have recognized, the substantive issues were decided in the March order. And then 60 days passed and there was a concern on the part of Mr. Aliari that under the case law that's cited in our brief, there would be an argument that the appeal had been waived if there was not a notice of appeal in that time. There is then an agreement to the technical issue of the value of the BECU deed of trust. That's all that remained at that point. That happened afterwards. That doesn't seem ministerial. All that remains at this point, you asked what would come after a ruling, would be an order of sale. You could take exception with some of the conditions of that order of sale, correct? Well, we have some guidance on this because this happened during the first appeal. There was argument and the argument which was already presented to the district court in advance of the March order was that you shouldn't order sale here because there's going to be no value to the government. That is the principal objection to an order of sale. That issue, as counsel read to you. So you're not going to have a condition. You're telling me that there's no condition that the district court could enter that you would object to for the order of sale. I can't say that, Your Honor. What I can say is that the order of sale under the case law is not a necessary piece to resolve the issue. If we were to dismiss for lack of jurisdiction and then the government files a proposed order of sale and asks the district court to enter it and you file an opposition, that would just prove that we were right, that this wasn't final. So, Your Honor, 
when the original notice of, so as I mentioned, there was this outstanding issue of the value of the BECU deed of trust, but all the substantive issues were resolved. So what Mr. Aliari anticipated is that there would be, that once the BECU deed of trust was made concrete, there would be an order of sale at that point. That didn't happen, I believe, again, I don't want to speak for the district court, but I believe because the issue was on appeal. I think we may have a fundamental disagreement about what qualifies as a ministerial task, but we'll have to sort that out. Thank you. Thank you. The case is now submitted and we are adjourned for the day. All rise.